Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. Uh, if you listened to our last episode, you know that we were talking about a bunch of new films that are streaming and in theaters, and we wound up running out of time as usual, and we were just getting into Todd Field's Tar with Kate Blanchett, and it's a great movie. Uh, it's definitely one of our favorites of the year. And when we discussed it, we found ourselves really getting into a big conversation and talking uh, really in depth, a lot more than we get a chance to with most films. So rather than having to edit that down for time, we thought that we would uh, break the episodes into two parts. And this is that second part, which uh, gets into the details of Tar, which uh, we really recommend people take a look at. Um, if you can't get out to the theater when it's streaming, uh, certainly check it out. Uh, it's very, very good movie. Uh, lots of layers to it. Uh, so without further ado, I bring you back into the conversation. We had just started talking about Tar in the last episode, so if you missed that, certainly go back on StuffWe'veSeen.com and check out that episode. You'll find all our episodes there, past and present. Uh, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts and all the other streaming places they tend to pop up at uh, where we're on them. So, uh, again, StuffWe'veSeen.com is the easiest place to find us. Um, and again, now enjoy the episode. So, yeah, and then what's and so there's a reason for that one, but there's a reason for that one take because later it gets edited up. <laughs> exactly, yes, and and it wouldn't work if it if there were cuts in that scene. Uh, when you see it again later, all cut up. If it had been if there had been cuts the first time around, it wouldn't have as much impact the second time around. Yeah, but you don't know. Like that's the thing is, you and I as you're going through. You don't know he's going to pull that, and what it what it reveals, I think, is Todd as a filmmaker saying how misrepresented a situation gets yes. from from live to when somebody posts something, like say on social media. There are definitely lots of comments on social media. The other thing is that scene. I had to check in a couple of times with myself and say, "Wait, this there haven't been any cuts," and part of the reason for that is that it's not show offy. Right, like no, that this it you so subtle that I myself was like, wait a minute, was was there a cut in that? Yeah. Well, the camera's going all over the place. It moves in close. It goes in far. It's like it's all the cuts, but live. Yeah, but it moves so, uh, it's so well motivated the camera movements that it's not just some swooping around steady cam like, hey, look at me doing one choreographed shot no you're on the actors the whole time and so you're so focused on the performance and the dialogue that you don't notice that it's this virtuoso shot and you you just get caught up in the moment of it well and of course the opening sequence which is another long sequence which is that um that interview right with the was it the new york times critic or whoever it was an actual real it's Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker, yeah. So it plays out like this is like a real, very obnoxious, stuffy interview. But again, the editing is such genius. Like the, the composition of the shots, you'd mentioned a few episodes back of that editor that we know, Kate Haight, yeah. and about when to cut. Yes. And that's, again, this editing of this movie. He seems to know exactly how long you should be on her or him or... I, I, it's hard to describe, but like, yeah. here's a movie that's two hours and 40 minutes and it goes by real fast. 
Yeah, so this, I don't know, I don't know where to begin with this movie, but at some point in this movie, I, I, I realized I'm, t- I'm tense. It's a very intense film, yes. And there's a huge amount of tension, and I started thinking about, okay, where, what's generating the tension? And it, it's a couple different things. One is that you kind of, you know that something is coming because you see it in the character, and so you know this is that she is on this tightrope walk and you kind of feel that, but that, but the story doesn't explicitly say like, here's, you know, here's an event and here's the consequences and we're waiting for the shoe to drop. It doesn't do that explicitly. It sort of sets you on this high wire and so much of the tension I finally realized, yes, it comes from from the filmmaking it comes from these shots that are often uh often very long there's also shots where there's like two people in a scene and he only shows one of them which is you know sort of that guitar thing i was thinking about there's a couple scenes with her in a car and there's somebody sitting next to her and you don't see both of them but so much of the tension in this film comes from her performance and i realized that it's an incredible performance, but part of what is so incredible about it is that it creates this tension. And I was on the edge of my seat through this movie and uh, just, and I couldn't, it, it took me a while to figure out where was this tension coming from? Because it's not like there's a bunch of quick cuts and tight plotting and sort of uh, horror movie type tension or even thriller tension that is sort of in the ways we expect a thriller to work, but it is so tense and so anxiety provoking. I think the last time I saw a movie that was this anxiety provoking was uncut gems. And it's a completely different, interesting, completely different technique for getting that anxiety and that tension going. But they're similar in the sense that they're a character on a high wire. Yeah. And you know, I mean, we could spend, I think days talking about this movie, but one thing that really, really fascinated me with Kate Blanchett's performance in this movie is that her character, Lydia Tarr, multifaceted, but watch throughout the film how, depending on the situation and who she's engaging with, her character changes slightly yes. in voice, in appearance, in physical manners. Yes. It changes a lot depending on where she is in the movie, and it's not—it's not because Kate Blanchett doesn't understand her character. It's because Kate Blanchett understands her character, and her character is manipulative, and so she wears these different hats and faces. Yeah, and it's—but that level of detail to the performance is something that is so rare in what I've ever seen, and I—I just—I mean, like I said, I was blown away by this movie. And that it's so subtle that those changes in performance are so subtle that you, and, and again, I think that's this high wire act, right? You see these different aspects of her, but it's not like she's boisterous and yelling in one scene and quiet as a mouse in another. It's, it's much more subtle variations than that. I think you're right too, when you say about what a conductor does and uh, this movie, embodies the idea of music in terms of how it plays with motif and tension and 
rhythm of the editing, all these different things, and that subtle those subtle changes in her performance that you might have between movements in a classical piece. I I, I haven't gone yet because I just watched this last night and I finished very late, but I've been wanting to, uh, since I stopped it, to listen to Mahler's Fifth Symphony over and over again because I feel like there's a real reason why he chose that particular piece of music to be the centerpiece piece of music in this film. Well, yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing. If I was, say, a, a, a classically trained musician and understood composition and all of that and say, like, you know, like, like I know a lot about film, right? So I know if somebody's doing a movie about a filmmaker or something, I can sense when it's real or not. Right. My wife, she's in the healthcare profession, works at a hospital. And whenever <laughs> oh, she man. sees things, whenever she sees medical things on TV, it's almost always like, that's, she, she just, She's like, that That wouldn't be there. There was something that right. was in Smile, right? And she's like, that's a hazard risk. That would never be in a room like that. Like, I mean, she can spot that stuff. So if I was, would I, would I feel like, oh, well, that's wrong or that's wrong? Maybe. However, this movie feels so confident in its technical expertise on the field that I was marveled at Todd Field's script as in, how the hell did this guy come up with this? Well, not only that, but her Again, going back to her performance, there was no question in my mind that she understood the music on the level that she's supposed to. Yes, I you know the character feel. You know, I had more people ask me. Uh, I had a friend last night who's like, "I've heard about this tar. Is that based on a real person?" Like people think yeah. that it's a real person. Well, and also, you know, something about this movie is that the side actors. Uh, or side characters who are musicians, they're actually playing the instruments and they are virtuoso. Yes. And it is, you know, there's a scene where this uh, character who's a cellist sits down at the piano and is playing a very simple piece, but you see her fingers on the piano and you realize, oh, this is an actor who can not only give a great performance, but can play the cello and the piano. And it's and there's it's not like we're cheating on the camera angle and not showing her fingers on the keys. Yeah, she was actually a cellist, a British cellist that had to learn how to play that role as an actor because she could play the music. But they that they he hired people for their musical abilities and then had to work to make sure that they could act too. Yeah, and I you know that's a matter of taking the time to get those performances, and you know like that long shot at the Juilliard scene that we're talking about. That I don't know how many times they must have shot that or rehearsed it or something, but it's you know it's perfect. You know that scene in itself. There's you know there's a whole subtext to the movie, and again. I like his handling of it. I mean, this idea, because we, we hinted a little bit at the beginning, this idea of cancel culture, yeah. wokesterism, and all that. And what was fascinating is the person who's ultimately going to have their downfall based on their behavior from the past is this character, Lydia Tarr. But we get to experience her behavior that I don't think is any different than her behavior has been all along. And it kind of lets us say how inappropriate is her behavior yeah it isn't appropriate but at the same time the character is sort of likable in a weird way but also like you know how much license does the music community give a genius or any artistic community and she's been able to get away with certain things for so long but now 
She's now living in a world where it's changed and she doesn't understand that it's changing right before her very eyes. Yeah. And there's two conduct. There's a scene with the old guy. I can't remember the actor's name uh, who's retired. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who's in uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. So he's he's a retired conductor slash musician who was sort of her mentor or he had the job before she had it, I guess. And there's a scene where they're talking in a restaurant and they mention two conductors whose careers were ruined by what they call in the movie sexual impropriety. And, and those are real. These two conductors they mentioned yeah, just no, in, I know. in the last five years. And that scene, they, comp- <laughs> they compare being accused of sexual impropriety to being accused of being a Nazi. Literally, they're talking about uh, the post-war era in Germany and denazification and how people who were associated with Nazis had their careers ruined. It's kind of on the nose, right? But it, it the way the film is executed, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily hitting you over the head with these things repeatedly, but it does engage those questions. And then it's like, okay, well, Mahler or so-and-so threw a woman down the stairs or he had 20 kids or, you know, all these different things. And we're thinking, okay, well, we still listen to Mahler. We still listen to Beethoven, right? Despite all these horrible things. And so we're holding these people accountable now, but how much do we forgive in terms of the art versus the person? And the film, in my opinion, doesn't come down on this argument in one way more than another. It it allows the audience the space to sort of think about and explore this. And one thing I think is brilliant is the movie starts with her resume in that Adam Gopnik scene at you know, the New Yorker interview. He basically recites her resume and you see her assistant mouthing along with it, right? Because clearly she's written this introduction. Yep. And so you get this resume and it's uh, and at first I thought, well, that's kind of weird to just give us her resume at the beginning, right? Like that's not character development, but it's what it's showing is that she is absolutely perfect on paper. Right. To all outward appearances, she's absolutely perfect. And then over the course of the film, we start to see the cracks and we're kind of rooting for her a little bit. But we slowly start to see more and more of her as we get to know her to the point where we are maybe not rooting for her by the end of the film. We maybe have turned completely. And what Richard Brody doesn't like about this movie is he thinks the movie sides with her and shows her as a victim. So I disagree with Brody on this. I don't think the film is portraying her as a victim of cancel culture. So that's his reading of the film. I think he thinks it's a weird. Yeah. And and so I disagree with his reading. I don't like he didn't say it's a bad movie. He just disagreed with it with its sympathies. And I didn't see the film as having those sympathies. I mean, this movie is so layered and the script, so much stuff is baked in. I mean, you mentioned that conversation she has with her former mentor, and there's some little thing that that, that a hint about where some of these uh these Nazi associates end yeah. up in their careers and i think that there's like you know a very fun sort of uh, uh resolution to her story at the very end yeah that that's pretty clever the thing is uh, there's this scene as we mentioned the one shot scene at juilliard and she starts picking apart this young composer 
Um, and I think his performance, and again, this is that one take thing, which I didn't realize was really one take until yeah. like, close to the end, is I don't know if his performance was the best. I think that his knee shaking was good and bad at the same time. <laughs> what was interesting, though, about the story is that, you know, there is something generational about the kids today mm-hmm. that they come up with these high and mighty ideas. And uh, in this case, this guy doesn't want to listen to certain music, right? Or play certain music by composers that he is deemed, you know, cancelable, I guess. Well, it, part of it is just that there, you know, the canon in uh, Western classical music, the canon is a bunch of old straight, straight white men. And, you know, he's sort of saying, well, we need to expand beyond that. And, look at a larger group of composers than just this very narrow white male patriarchy. Yeah, but I but it's not how he comes across with the way he's doing it. And in her, I feel like the way she puts a defense that I thought was pretty good. <laughs> well, absolutely. That- and, and, and it's important to point out that in her resume, she has... Well, she spent a lot of time trying to bring women and indigenous people into music. She did this whole ethnography thing uh, with indigenous music. And so she is actually culturally inclusive. Well, that's why that's why I think this guy, he completely he he's supposed to be for all of these principles, but he's also missing the fact that she is the only female conductor of a major orchestra. Yeah. Ever. Um, yes. And that, you know, this is just a kind of a guest class and she's just teaching one thing. And I think that it reminds me of a situation that's happened recently where there is an NYU professor teaching organic chemistry, one of the hardest oh, classes yes. you could ever yeah. take. And if you're supposed to be, a, you know, wanting to be a doctor or a scientist, you have to get through it. And most people don't do very well. But Groups of kids felt that his class was too hard and complained to the university, and he was let go. Yes. It also reminds me, when I was at NYU, there was a a guy, his name was Ben Haim. He was a, actually a famous oh, yeah. uh, Indian filmmaker. He had made a very yeah. famous movie in India, like in the 50s. And he taught editing, but I think he also taught sight and sound. And I used to hear rumors that kids hated him because he was so strict. Right. And I took... I had to take him for editing. And I remember in his classes that he would get mad if anybody put their foot on the desk, right? You know, he was he was right. like, you wouldn't treat your home that way. Don't treat my class that way. And he was really, he was a character, but he was really smart. And I learned so much about the concepts of editing because of this guy. But people complained because they felt he was too hard or whatever. Right. And- he was uh, let go the following year. Oh, I didn't realize. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, Bill, so Bill from Queens and I, we, we were friends uh, that year. We ran into him on the street and he was like, he's like telling us this story. He's like, the kids went to Ken Danzinger, the, the dean, <laughs> the chair and said that he's, I'm too hard. So Ken Danzinger, he's like, well, don't want me. And he's like, I'll wipe the floor with this Ken Danzinger guy. <laughs> he was the greatest character. He used to wear like a cape and would like go around on a bicycle. And he used to smoke like these very long, thin, feminine cigarettes. I mean, the guy was a super character. Well, we were having a party at my apartment and we invited him. And we thought he'd never show, but we gave him the address. We had all these kids from NYU there, 
and the door rings and in comes Ben <laughs> with his cape and everything. And he hung out with all the kids and had a great time. And we were really upset that he had gotten let go. Uh, and I'm like, you know, so even like 20, 30 years ago, kids were, you know, saying that, oh, if I think a teacher's too tough. I'm going to get them fired. Right. And, and so in this movie, it comes back later. You said something that I just want to go back to is you said she makes a good argument and she does. I'm on her side in that in that scene. Right. But so what happens is we get this long thing where we get to hear the whole argument, how it all played out. And then somebody who doesn't like her, and this is before the big scandal goes down, they send out this video that shows very, very edited clips of the engagement. And it makes her look like some kind of weird monster. Yes. And then you realize that somebody, when they're out to get you, is going to put something out in a certain way. And- Ordinarily, she might have just dismissed it and been like, oh, whatever. Who cares about these kids? The kids are so sensitive. But then on top of the other scandal that breaks, suddenly a video like this almost becomes evidence as, see, this is the way she is. And I think that that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And there's a social media pile on and every little perceived slight and crack in her resume is exploited and blown up. I, you know, I, it's interesting with Brody, it's like where I personally was not, uh, I didn't see her as the victim of this. I saw her as the victim of her own worst instincts, her own power, her own ego. I saw her as being responsible for her own undoing by the end of the film. And even though maybe it's, Like that video is, I think, totally unfair, but some of the other stuff is fair. Well, but here's an interesting thing. And this is what, again, it's all about the director, what the director chooses to show us and not. Uh, Yes. So like when her life is unraveling, obviously her, I don't know if it's their official wife or not, but obviously they've broken up and she's been kicked out of their house and she's not allowed to see their daughter. And so things are happening off screen. Yes. But also- this is what's really, and again, this is where it puts it puts the job of the viewer, and every viewer may see things differently. Yeah, is we do get to walk in her shoes, so we see her behavior. Now, if her behavior with the cellist is any indication of the way she's operated in the past, she's like either no better or worse than a lot of these Lothario guys in power that have gone after and cheated right. on their wives with people. Um, they use their power and power position to get what they want. But if you notice in the cellist, either she's losing her touch because tide is changing or she doesn't, she's not always successful because the, because she never, right. the cellist doesn't fall for, fall for her advances. And she doesn't also doesn't uh, lose any position because of that. I mean, clearly, Tar is making some uh, exceptions to give her some notice because she likes her. But also, we we don't get a full detail on this um, accuser or this person who was maybe abused by the power of Tar who killed themselves. You just said this, and I think it's really important. I, I wrote this down while I was watching the movie, is what the director chooses to show and not show us in terms of her behavior and the outside world and all these things, there are big gaps in, we're shown some very quiet, intimate moments. We're even shown her dreams. Yeah. So we are right inside her head. And then other things are completely major things are skipped over or implied. And it's a really interesting balance in terms of 
uh, it, for me, it brought up this question of judging these people, you know, a celebrity or whoever that, you know, we're judging through social media and we're seeing fragments, right? That, that we see yeah. this, this clip on TV. We hear this person said such and such we hear, and we are getting fragments and this film plays off that idea of the audience getting fragments of a person's life and having to make a judgment and and not just and, and sort of the judgment is demanded of the audience we we can't walk out of this going i don't know not really like you're you're forced into some sort of moral position on all of this and you're forced to, as the audience, ask these questions of yourself. And I think that's what this film does so well. I haven't seen it yet, but there's this uh, She Said Harvey Weinstein movie coming out. Yeah, and the, and the knock on that is it's maybe a little too like in-your-face simplistic. It's like very surface level. Well, that's what it looks like from the trailer. and Yeah, that's what the reviews are like, too. <laughs> okay, yeah. And and this movie, uh, it, it's really on the nose at certain times. And I have two issues with the movie. <laughs> oh, of course. They're very small and they don't, they're just two little, should I tell you what they are? I will. They're two. <laughs> they're yeah, two, we don't have, it's only 85 minutes in. Okay. So. There's two small things this movie does that I feel like are a little too on the nose for me. And one is when she goes to bring the bear back to the cellist. And she goes into this basement and there's this dog and she runs away from the dog and she falls on her face. And it was like simultaneously too literal and too poetic and a little too on the nose, right? Because it, it coincides with, with her fall as a person and it's like, and here she is falling on her face, right? Like, Okay, but I got I to gotta, I gotta stop you on this. And I got to tell you one thing. And this is why I didn't have that problem. Uh -huh. Literally, literally the night before I go out to take my dog out <laughs> and I, I go down this set of stairs every every night and he's always like yanking and stuff and then i go and, and, he, and he does his little you know pee well i go down i go out i get down to the bottom of the stairs oh, and man. i don't know what it was i turned or something and the dog jerked and i literally tripped over myself and i fell flat straight down it didn't hit my face thankfully but i scraped my knee and my oh. arms and i lived right on the cement and then the next day I see this dark and I felt such like sympathy of like, I know exactly that, that moment. And then, but what I liked about the, the scene was that instead of telling the truth about why, what felt she made right. up a whole story, which is another thing about yes. her is that she will conveniently make up lies to cover. I mean, she's also got like a pill problem. And oh she's yeah. Like, she, yeah. She's so she constantly reinvents who she is to project a certain you know, yes, persona, and even when she had all these marks, she tells this thing. It doesn't sound convincing, and nobody there seems to be convinced. They're already, I think, turning against her. Yes. So, okay, so that was one point you didn't like, but what's the other one? Oh, the other point was the neighbor dying. Okay, why didn't you like that? Well, I felt like her falling on her face and the neighbor dying are both things that are not necessarily motivated by the narrative. And they felt hmm. like, and they felt like the, it, so it, it all happens around the time that things start unraveling for her. Well, yeah, but no, no, no. But so here's the thing is that that's her getaway place that she has. That she oh, still I keeps. know, but it, and, it just felt but, but like. But the, the neighbors throughout is not well, and you don't know that whole story. And it's not until she dies that you understand a little bit more about that, that story. 
And then those people want her, they, they're like worried that her loud noise. And I loved how she like totally loses it in the apartment <laughs> about making noise. And it's another facet of her character that you never see. It just felt to me like the film was piling on a little too many events at that point because it's like. You just proves that you will never let a movie be perfect. <laughs> you will find something <laughs> in these movies to pick. Because okay, but now look, we we had another thing planned that we cannot get to today, yeah. unfortunately. But but that's also because we we just saw Tar and had no idea that Tar turned out to be what I wanted Banshees of Inishirin to be, fair or unfair. And I really maybe because of the of the fact that I haven't been over like I haven't been excited about a movie that I was trying to get excited about, that Tar hit me like a ton of bricks. I just was floored I was floored by this movie. You're giving this movie a ten out of ten, right? I was giving it a 9 out of 10, but then a day later, I decided to give it a 10 out of 10. So far, it's my favorite film of the year, the best film of the year. As a matter of fact, I feel like the movie is definitely going to get nominated for picture and director and actress. It will not win Best Picture because a movie this good will never win Best Picture. That's how they are. It will never win because it's too good. Well, and it's morally ambiguous. It puts you in an uncomfortable situation, which maybe is good, but... You know, it's not like Green Book where it is morally simplified for you or crash. No, we need to have an uplifter. That's the only movie that's going to win Best Picture this year is something that's going to uplift audiences, and I haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I don't know what that movie is, but I this is definitely in my top three for the year so far. And, okay, four. No, three. I'll, I'll say it's to my top three. If I can go to decimals, I'll give this movie a 9.7. Well, that's pretty high, I think. Yes. So, no, I, I was blown away by this movie. I absolutely, as soon as I was done, <laughs> and because I, I wrote it down when it happened, at that that single take scene at Juilliard, uh, as soon as I was done with the movie, I went back and watched that scene again. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I felt like it was such a good setup, and then I, I wanted to see it again in the con. And so this is a movie, I think, uh, this is sort of a side conversation we've been having, you know, outside of the show. But oh, yes, <laughs> but but about movies that that reward repeated viewings. Yeah, this would definitely be a good movie to see again. That's my point: is that this is a movie that has enough depth and ambiguity and interest, and that seen seen it again when it's contextualized, it, you know. Knowing the ending and seeing the beginning and tying those two together and watching this unfold over the course of it, I think would be very rewarding on a second watch. And I intend to watch it again because uh, I now I'm going to my wife doesn't have time to watch a lot of movies, but I'm going to demand that she see this. Well, I think as somebody who's a professor, right, who teaches yes. kids, I think there's a fascinating angle there um, for her. But I think that this is to me a tremendous, well, I think it's a tremendous achievement in acting of, of Kate Blanchett. I think it's an amazing achievement in direction of Todd Fields, but even maybe more so, I think the screenplay yes. is really well because the things that do pay out later, they're in there, but you don't get, it's not so obvious. Like in so many movies, I feel like that nugget of information is sticking out like a sore thumb to come yeah. back later. Whereas in this film, the stuff that gets talked about that you don't really realize, you remember it later when it happens, but it's more like, oh, wow. So, yeah. I mean, I just, I really like this movie. I want some a movie that challenges me a bit, mm -hmm. that gives me things on multiple levels and 
yeah, like there's two kinds of movies that you want to see again. One, a film like this where there's different layers and you want to get some additional experience after you've been through yeah. the whole journey. But other films, and I don't discount that, there are other films you see again and again because of the pure enjoyment. They're almost like Absolutely. a perfect movie in that it's not about seeing it to get more on a different level. It's just about to re-experience something that's really great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't want to discount that at all. I mean, those movies, yeah, you just get some joy from them and re-experiencing that joy or that fun or that entertainment and or or watching it again with somebody else and watching. You know, there's a lot of movies like that where I get pleasure out of just seeing my kids experience them. Yeah, yeah. I'm going through that again where I'm seeing things that I don't watch a lot, but it's fun that I'm getting, I got a chance to watch them with my oldest. Now yeah. I'm getting the chance to watch them with the youngest. And I'm realizing yeah, as I get up there that I may not be seeing some of these movies time and time again. Like that might be my last run of certain right. films. Um, and you had mentioned this, and this is sort of a preview that might be our next episode. I don't know. We might, now that we didn't get a chance to talk about these fascism movies, I think we're going to do an episode on that. And then we're going to get to our big Spielberg episode. But one of the things that started your discussion about seeing movies over and over again is Spielberg. Yeah. Now, the ones that I've seen many, many times of Spielberg, I think fall into the category of such great experiences. I don't know why I love watching them over and over again, like Jaws, but I do. Raiders, E.T., those kind of things. Well, I like I just saw E.T. in the theater again recently with my 10-year-old. And you enjoyed that experience. Loved it. I've seen the movie so many times, and it's always enjoyable. I don't know that I get more out of it intellectually, but I'm always emotionally engaged. And I think that's where your knock, and we'll get more into it in the Spielberg episode, but I don't disagree with you, is that when I see a Spielberg movie, I don't rewatch it thinking I'm going to get some extra levels. I think that he's a guy where, where his strengths are is he's able to craft something surface level. You get everything he wants you to get yeah. right there. And it's not that it's hit it over the head. It's just that this is the experience and he's not a director that feels like, well, I want you to see it a bunch of times and get something out of it. Whereas maybe a Tarantino, his movies, right. you might get something else out of it a second time. And then other directors, uh, like again, like a movie like this, it's a challenging film tar and you may not get everything at, at first and you may need to go back and go, oh, wow, I didn't even catch that. And that that's right. myself. There might be some details that I didn't get the first time around that I'm looking forward to seeing a second time. Me too. And, you know, there's another Spielberg film that I saw again recently that I enjoyed the first time around. And I just, I, I didn't hate it the second time around. I, you know, my, my kids liked it. And, uh, I, but I, I, it just wasn't quite as joyful to me the second time around. And I felt like, yeah, I don't really need to see it a third time. Whereas E.T., I will always get enjoyment from. Raiders of the Lost Ark, always get enjoyment from. Some movies that I really love are movies I've only seen once. And I don't oh, me too. Really yeah. seem good just because I, you know, but listen, gang. Well, and I got to say, I could keep talking about Tar. Like well, that's a sign that's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to, but I could, and so I am encouraging everyone to who who is still listening at this point in the show, uh, do what you can to make the effort to watch a two hour and forty minute drama uh, about classical music because it's worth it. Uh, with soft and quiet, my whole problem with the one take thing is that it felt like it, a stunt. 
But then if you go into a movie like this where, yeah, there's room for long takes, there's room for this very long take because it means something in the overall picture of the film because it's going to make a point later. And that's where I'm saying is that directors should be innovative of why they're doing long takes or that. Just give some thought to what you're doing in a film. And that's, that, 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 like I said, Tar proves my point. It has to contribute to the story somehow, you know, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, Here was my last point on Tar. What was up with the opening credits? I love that because it was not the like, even that I'm like, it feels like I'm watching the end of the movie, not the beginning of the movie. Right, exactly. And because it has all the end credits at the beginning. Also, I don't know if you know this, the, the sound design of this movie, it starts out in mono and slowly integrates more sounds and more music and becomes stereo and uh, multi-channel. Interesting. Okay. Well, I did watch it with headphones on and I did notice some very pronounced stereo later in the film. Yeah. So he's playing with every, this is a guy who takes a movie that doesn't seem like it would be like this big visual masterpiece or something. He, this Todd Field, I mean, he just hit, to me, he hit this thing out of the freaking park. Absolutely. But yeah, tell me about the, these credits really, even that, like I said, it was already setting the stage for something unusual. I may be reaching here, but I think there's something about putting all those credits at the beginning. It's like, the stunt people and the makeup people and the gaffers, like they're all at the beginning. And I think there's a statement being made about the individual auteur director, uh, conductor being the star versus all these other people who do the work. And so I think there's actually a story point or a thematic point being made by putting those credits at the beginning, which is to say, this is the work of many people. Here's the entire orchestra. You may or may not watch the credits at the end of the movie. Right. But when you're watching it all at the beginning, which was what they used to do in Hollywood, by the way, for years, all of the people that made the movie, it was in the credits. And usually at the end, it was just the end. Well, and this has the actors at the end and the music at the end, which I was grateful for because I wanted to see the, you know, what, what what the titles of the pieces of music were, one in particular, which I won't mention. But but forget this crappy tar movie. What about Wakanda forever? Yep, I'll be seeing it. And on that note. I'm going to see it when it's on Disney, but my kids, I've told you, they're out. They're not into Marvel anymore, and that means I don't have to drive anywhere to see it. <laughs> well, luckily, I don't have to drive that far. Yeah, you have lots of theaters close to you, and you have a really cool IMAX theater, as I've now discovered through our conversations. Yes. And I really encourage you to go see it there if that's where you're going to, if you're going to see it. So that's that's my intent is to go see it there. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have reserved seats. No, IMAX doesn't usually. Okay. But well, but by then you can get, come on, look, look, man, it's been out for a couple of weeks. You'll be able to get a great seat. Don't yeah, worry. no, that's true. I uh, Yeah, I just, you know, then I have to get there a little earlier. I haven't been to the theater oh, before, you know. Poor it, it's, it's really hard for me. It's it's hard out here for, you know, uh, uh, a film goer. I have two, you have two kids. I have two kids, but I don't find it as hard as you do. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, I'll tell you what the difference is here. Uh, you don't hang out with your kids. That's true. <laughs> and it's not, they don't want to hang out with me. It's great. I just let them be, look, at they're, they're, they're just very independent. They go off and do their thing. They come in. We all watched uh, Smile together. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, honestly, look, I had kids later in life. I'm old. 
They know I'm old. I know I'm old. They don't want to hang out with me. I, I, I'm not saying I don't want to hang out with them, but I mean, I let them no, do I, thing, I understand. You know? I, it wasn't a criticism. I was just pointing they out. They choose that, their own adventure. Yeah. The adventures very rarely include me. Well, it's great. It's like, see, we go and like, you know, we, we used to be like, oh, we're going to go out somewhere. And we, the kids had no choice. They had to come out with us as a family. And we live in Vermont. So anywhere we had to go was like an hour away. Yeah. But as soon as they could stay home by themselves, that's when you discover they didn't really ever want to go on those trips. <laughs> right. They wanted to stay home. And now that they can, they most always choose at home. The bonus is I get time. To, my wife and I get to go and do things ourselves. Yeah. We get to watch what we want to watch on TV because the kids don't watch TV. They don't care about that. Right. They're into VR. They're into VR. Billy goes and gets his uh, exercise. He's like, I'm going down, getting some exercise on the VR. <laughs> he zooms downstairs. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, okay. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up because- uh, Let's wrap. I know. It was good. Well, we, who, you know what? That, that, that I get excited when we have a movie that we can really talk about. And you know what? Uh, Decision to Leave, Banshees of Inishirin. I think these are all movies we could talk more about if we'd both seen them. Yeah. And I know by now that that doesn't always happen. So I'm glad we had the one film that we both could talk about. And, you know, if I'm sure around awards time, we will mention Tar again. So, yeah, I mean, that's the nice thing. We'll be, we always integrate movies that we've seen back into the conversation. Yeah. Well, and, but nobody is going, nobody is going to see Tar. No, they are. I mean, it's doing okay for an art movie. It's not supposed to be a big budget thing. I mean, well, no, but it's not. Uh, I was expecting it to maybe catch on a little more than it has. Well, I wanted to see it in the theater, and so I when I went to see the the two films that I saw, yeah, Tar was definitely in the running. The problem was at two hours and forty minutes. It's not that I couldn't handle a movie right. that long; it's that it didn't fit in with seeing two films. Right, you can't double feature it. Yeah, yeah. So I had to wait the on demand and. Uh, and and it's like I'm voodoo. Uh, yeah. The hoodoo that you do is voodoo. So uh, you can check it out at home with voodoo, or you can go to the theater and see it. Um, if it's even playing near you. Yeah. When it gets onto like more on demand or, or any of the streaming services, I highly recommend it. And it's not for everybody, like anything, right? That's just not going to be for everybody. I mean, if you're just, if Marvel is your is your jam and that's what you love, you're probably not going to like it. You're not going to like this movie. It, I, you know, I was so so tense during this movie, but I kept thinking I can see other people being completely bored by it. See, that's the thing is, it felt like it would be a boring experience. However, the filmmaking is so masterful that I think that's when I first like 20 minutes in I stopped and I had to start texting you because I was like I'm watching stuff that should be boring but it's so well done that I'm I'm just mesmerized yes I was on the edge of my seat through this entire movie and I, I mean thinking, I'm not a classical music like aficionado why would I care it, it, yet it, it <laughs> yeah. is making me really fascinated by this person's world yeah and I, I did keep thinking why am I not bored <laughs> what how, how is this so effectively and so masterfully done that it's taking something that should be boring and it isn't because the acting is you feel like these are real people in that they're talking about a subject that See, only here we go again We're, we could just go on and on about time. well i think it's going to be two episodes now and i know i yeah. don't have to go in a minute but i'm just saying is that like you you really buy that she is somehow this masterful composer and conductor yes. because the the script the stuff comes out of her, their mouths it just feels like what those people with that kind of expertise and experience would talk to each other about absolutely yeah and and again look not everybody has it 
I, I can just tell you that Todd Fields, the way he's able to set up these shots with the cinematographer, he he finds a way, a rhythm. And again, it's all in the stuff that Kate Blanchett's character talks. Yeah. It talks about when people just see a conductor waving their arm, maybe it's like, oh, that's kind of cool, but they don't realize they're doing anything. And that's what the maestro does. They control time. I found that so fascinating. Absolutely. And it yeah. stuck with me through the whole movie that here's a movie that's long. It's two hours and 40 minutes, but he's conducting time in a way and even at the end, right, where once that video comes out yeah. and it's cut, well, then he starts cutting too. He cuts part yes. of the light, her life out. We don't see parts of the story anymore. We see big chunks are missing. So like that's, how do you, I mean, see, that's like this guy had a plan and a vision. And that's why I feel like it's such a masterful movie because tell me five other movies that are going to come out this year, they're going to do that. Tell me one other movie that's going to do that. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I'm going to wait till we do our uh, best of the year. But I, you know, there's at least one other movie that I, no. <laughs> there's no way this movie's not going to be in my top ten. I mean, I'd have to see. I would be delighted if I saw ten other movies and then from now till then that were better than Tar. It would be the best year of cinema. <laughs> I'm keeping a best of 2022 list as I go through the year. And uh, I think I've got six movies on it right now. Well, there's going to be some weird ones for me that are going to be on there that normally might not be. Well, I, I just keep adding stuff. You know, I, I, some of these may not end up on the final list, but I'm sort of, when I see something like Tar or Pearl, I put it on my list. Yeah, Tar. So, like, movies like uh, Everything All at Once, yeah. that's definitely in my in my list right now. I think that will be hard for me to knock. Um, Pearl. Tar, uh, you know, this decision to leave movie, um, you know, even things like Prey, right? Yeah. I, I I love that movie. And I think that seeing the success of these other horror films, yeah, it just proves that uh, 20th Century, is that who puts that out? I think They so, bombed yeah. so bad because you can't tell me that if Prey hadn't come out in August in theaters for a few oh, weeks, it done that great. that movie wouldn't have made 80 million domestic and another 100 million overseas. They, they blew yeah, it. Easily. Yeah, And you tell me, this is what I just don't understand. I don't understand the economics and how they quantify or qualify that right. this movie on streaming earned so much for them that it was worth it not to put it in theaters. I know it costs money to market and all that, but a movie like Prey, they had to spend some money to make people go to Hulu. I'm sure people may have signed up for Hulu or whatever, sure. but how much profit would they have gotten if it made $200 million globally? You know, and prints and ads used to be the thing, right? But prints are no longer a thing. It is so much less expensive to put a movie in theaters now that it's digital uh, in terms of cost to the studio. Ads, still a huge cost. But prints, I, I, don't, know, I don't know, you know, the numbers on it, but I would, I would guess that it's, you know, 80% off now. It, the biggest miss of the year to me was them not putting this in the theater. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, Prey is on my list. It's a big screen movie. I mean, they must have been like crapping themselves when the critics actually started saying how exactly. good it was. Because they, yeah. they, I mean, because the Smile movie, it's a joke. It made it was it cost like twenty million. It made like a hundred million dollars. Well, and I think Smile was. I think Smile was intended to go direct to streaming, but it was. But Paramount Plus, thankfully, said you know. The test screening people, they, they love it. I think we got a hit on our hands. Yes, that's exactly it. They realized, oh, wait, this movie is better than we thought it was going to be. And and Paramount looked like geniuses because everybody was pushing them during the pandemic. Just released Top Gun on demand. Nope, we're going to yeah. wait. We're going to put it in the theater. 
I think people will still see a movie that's a sequel to something from 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Depending on the way the rest of the year goes, it might be in my top 10 because it was a fantastic piece of entertainment. It was, yeah. And I am curious. Well, this is a whole nother conversation that we're going to have at some point. Hour at, five of the program. At some, at some point after Avatar 2 comes out, we're going to have that conversation about whether movies need to exist, succeed on the small screen too, or whether it's okay just to have a theatrical movie. Or vice versa. Even. Or vice versa. Like, is, Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Is it okay to have just a small screen movie and not have the theatrical? Exactly. Um, and they know that's another thing. I went and saw movies, Decision to Leave and Banshees of Inishirin are two movies that you could totally say, hey, those could have been on the small screen. Right. But when I saw Banshees of Inishirin, it reminded me a lot of like the late 80s, early 90s kind of movies. Like, like for instance, it's not quite the same movie, but, you know, Jim Sheridan's The Field. I think yes, we saw yeah. that together. Yeah. Um, it, those are movies that were maybe for an art crowd, but you went out and saw them. And there's an experience you get inside a theater when you hear different people making noises or laughing and stuff that is something you don't get at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Decision to Leave is a widescreen film that this guy uses the frame in such a way that, yeah, I would have enjoyed it at home, but it was a great experience in the theater. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage people to go see Tar in the theater because I think I would that, love to see Tar in the theater. <laughs> I, yeah, and I, th I, I think not being able to escape Tar, you know, that's part of seeing it in the theater is you can't pause. And you can't go to the bathroom. I mean, you can, but you know, you can leave the theater, but you, something about being locked into and not having any other lights on and just being trapped in the movie for two hours and 40 minutes. That's part of the theatrical experience, not just the big screen and the other people there, but being locked into the movie, being trapped there with it, I think would be a really intense experience with Tar. Cause I paused if you did pause it a couple times. I paused a couple. Yeah, I went to get to, Me too. to go to the bathroom, yeah, get yeah. a drink. You know, I, I mean, I, yeah, a, a couple. I paused a couple of times. Well, it's like again with Smile. If you're trapped in a theater, those scares are going to be scary. I mean, I told you, my kid was having it was having a hyperventilating panic attack, and we had to pause it until he right. could recover. Yeah, but but he wouldn't have been able to do that in the theater. He'd have been terrified. <laughs> yeah, he might have had to leave. Yeah, and that's probably why the movie made $100 million. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> people wanted to go and get that feeling in the theater. So, um, But look at people. We have definitely uh, gone on for a long time. And and look, to make this even you know palatable, I, I, I wouldn't be able to cut this down. So <laughs> I will probably do a two episodes and maybe make a little break in between and say, hey, we're going to come back. So you're yeah. probably going to hear all the tar stuff on, on part two. And all the rest of the stuff on part one. But it's been fun. Um, okay, people, uh, go see some stuff. I've just, we've just given you a boatload of recommendations. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.